From the kids to Aunt Sue. Keep your whole family connected on all their devices with crowd-pleasing gig-speed internet from Xfinity. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Learn more about gig speed internet or other popular plans. With Xfinity, you'll enjoy faster downloads and a better streaming experience. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. You ever hear something and know the world will never be the same? Houston, we have liftoff. We'll wait until you hear this one. Half price coffee. That's right. Get into McDonald's weekdays before 10.30 a.m. for any size premium roast coffee or iced coffee. Both made with 100% Arabica beans, both half the price. Good is brewing. And that's the sound of your morning changing. Limited time only. May not be combined with any offer or combo meal at participating McDonald's. This podcast is part of the Bomb Pod Media Network. His mother closed her eyes and began to breathe deeply and rhythmically for a while. He and his brother watched as her face and features slowly began to change. The eyes began to slant. A long and thin mustache and beard started to grow. Her hair began to straighten and skin color change. In just a few moments, the two deeply horrified boys were looking not at their mother but at an old Chinese man who smiled back at them from where their mother's face had been. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. Welcome to Weird Darkness and My Haunted Life Tuesday. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, unsolved, and unexplained. On My Haunted Life Tuesday, I first go to MyHauntedLife2.com to find stories to use from there before filling out the rest of the show. This episode of Weird Darkness is sponsored by Horror Pack and by Food for the Poor. I'll tell you more about them later in the show, and you can find both right now at WeirdDarkness.com. Coming up in this episode… Some people claimed the old woman on the outside of town was a witch, and even today, hundreds of years later, you can still see her walking around with a lantern. Sometimes a sixth sense for the paranormal runs in families and author G. Michael Vasey from MyHauntedLife2.com shares experiences that his own father has related to him. A woman is convicted of murder by poisoning her husband, and two previous husbands, and seven children. And imagine finding your dream home 
only to realize that you're living in an infested demon portal that leads everyone to hell. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. In my hometown, there was a spring and the foundations of an old cottage. My father told me the story of an old woman who lived on the outskirts of the town where the cottage used to be. Some people claimed she was a witch, but all that is really known is that she was an herbal healer. This story dates to when my town was just a small farming town with barely more than a few families, and it was a long, long time before coal mining caused the place to become successful. The people whose families have lived here for generations would all say the same thing. Sometimes you can still see her walking around with a lantern. One night I was going out for a walk in that area. It's quite far from the road, far enough that you can't see any streetlights. Now I had gone out for this walk in the final hours of daylight but as winter was coming, it got darker quicker than I'd expected. I ended up getting a little lost. However, as I stumbled around, I saw a light, but it wasn't in the direction of the road. This light was out towards the fields that surrounded our town. I was seeing a light that shouldn't have been there. It was a lantern-like light, but at the time I just assumed it was a torch with an orange bulb. I followed it in hope of asking for directions from whomever was holding it. It ended up leading me to the old foundations on the old lady's house, which in turn meant that I knew I was a quick two-minute walk away from the main road. My father was a very good man and a great father. He was always so understanding of the strange events that happened to me and us while I was growing up and even into adult life. The reason for this was that he, too, experienced strange things and had done so since he was a boy. In fact, his mother was a medium and my dad plainly had inherited some of the gift and carried it like an unwanted burden through his life. Unfortunately, Dad was a strong and quiet man, so he never told me much about his experiences. But every now and then, perhaps over a pint, if he was in the right mood, he would mention one or two things that had occurred. His memories begin with being a small boy and seeing his mother have many visitors. Eventually, his mother told him and his brother that she was a medium and people would visit her to contact their dead relatives. He never said what he felt about that, but I can imagine it must have perturbed him at least a little. One day, he told me his mother started to tell her two young boys a little bit about being a medium. She told them that she had a spirit guide who worked through her and, if they wished, 
they could meet him. Overcoming any trepidation, my dad said yes, he would like to meet his mother's guide. What happened next, though, was so unexpected and so shocking for a young mind that he remembered it vividly all of his life. His mother closed her eyes and began to breathe deeply and rhythmically for a while. He and his brother watched as her face and features slowly began to change. The eyes began to slant. A long and thin mustache and beard started to grow. Her hair began to straighten and skin color change. In just a few moments, the two deeply horrified boys were looking not at their mother, but at an old Chinese man who smiled back at them from where his mother's face had been. One can imagine the fear and shock of this. Where was their mother? And who was this Chinese man? I know that it deeply disturbed him and that he had nightmares about it. I asked him why his mother did this, and he said that he thought she just genuinely wanted them to see there was nothing to be afraid of and hadn't realized how the boys would react. Anyway, it must have been a deeply traumatic experience for him. Throughout his life, Dad plainly saw and heard things that others did not. Periodically, he would wake up shouting and pushing some unseen thing away. When I asked him about this, he told me they were dark shadows and that was all he would ever tell me. Undoubtedly, he heard and saw some of the things that I did growing up as he simply accepted what was going on and tried to help me. It was my dad who told me one time that, in his experience, getting angry worked. What he meant by this was that whatever things these were, they seemed to get stronger the more scared you were. They fed off the fear energy that they caused, and it was this energy that attracted them. He told me, get angry, swear, and shout at them if need be, but be angry. Don't let them feed off your fear. He was right. The strategy always worked, since in some way the anger overcame the fear and they lost their energy source. However, getting angry, while a good temporary strategy, isn't a long-term solution. The long-term solution required inner work. It requires a strong mind and will and the determination to not allow these things into your world at all. Imagine finding your dream home, only to realize that you're living in an infested demon portal that leads everyone to hell. From a possessed child crawling upside down to another levitating, what's been nicknamed the Demon House is downright mortifying. While these events might sound like something out of the poltergeist and the exorcist, it's true, at least according to witnesses that lived and visited this home in Indiana. In November of 2011, Latoya Ammons, a mother of three, moved to a white rental cottage at 3860 Carolina Street in Gary, Indiana. 
Yes, the city that was once considered the murder capital of the U.S. After moving in with her children and mother, the family allegedly began to encounter poltergeist activities. Immediately after their move, the enclosed front porch was inundated with enormous black flies. How was that possible, the family thought? It was the dead of winter. Following the incident, it became a recurring event that after midnight, both Ammons and her mother Campbell would hear footsteps coming from the basement and the slow creaking of the door opening entirely to the exposed kitchen. Without fail, any time either one would check the basement, no one was there. One night, Latoya's mother felt a strange presence that awoke her. As she peeked outside her door, she was startled. She says there was a black shadow pacing back and forth in the living room. She removed herself from her bed to find giant, muddy boot prints. Not making a fuss over what had occurred, the family continued with their life at the Demon House. It wasn't until March of 2012 that what seemed to be odd turned to dread. One night, around 2 a.m., family and friends were gathered at the Demon House to mourn a loss of someone close. According to Ammons, she went to check on her kids to find her 12-year-old daughter unconsciously levitating above the bed, and without hesitation, everyone gathered around the child and began praying until she fell back to the bed. It was then that Ammons sought help. Local churches refused to visit the home and suggested Ammons clean the demon house by pouring ammonia and bleach throughout. Not only that, but to draw crosses on every door and bathe her children in olive oil. It was also proposed the family create a makeshift altar in the possessed basement. Regrettably, it wasn't doing much, so Latoya solicited two clairvoyants who claimed the house was possessed by more than 200 demonic spirits. The family didn't have enough money to break the lease on the demon house. They had no other choice but to stay. Ammons began to exercise the home. She did everything from only wearing white to burning sage and reading Psalm 91 out loud. Instead of things coming to a calm end, it only worsened. She also claims to have found her children speaking in tongues with bloodshot eyes and sporting sinister smirks. Her daughter said she felt like she was always being choked. Her youngest son would lock himself up in his closet to talk to a boy no one had ever seen. Around April, Ammons gave up and sought help from a physician. During their visit, the two boys in diabolical yells cursed the entire staff. A report filed by Department of Child Services and police stated that one of the boys had been magically thrown against a wall. After the incident, the boys proceeded to pass out and were hospitalized after. This is where things got a little out of hand. The youngest boy kept growling and telling his brother he was going to kill him and began to hit his brother's stomach by headbutting it. Following the gruesome act, he allegedly walked backward up onto a wall, made it to the ceiling and flipped over to land on his feet. 
During this time, the children were examined for any signs of abuse, and Ammons went through a psychological evaluation. To everyone's surprise, nothing was found. Either way, what had occurred in front of the hospital staff and police convinced the DCS to take custody of the children. Apparently, staff at the hospital reached out to Reverend Michael Maginot to perform an exorcism on one of the children. The Reverend visited the demon house where he insists he too experienced paranormal activity, from everything to the muddy footprints and flickering lights that wouldn't stop every time he investigated something supernatural. Maginot knew he had to exorcise Ammons. He placed a crucifix against her bed, and she couldn't stop convulsing. With four hours into his investigation, Maginot established the house was possessed and demanded they seek shelter elsewhere. They couldn't. The DCS was far from done with their investigation. They requested Officer Austin to review the living conditions of the Demon House. He stated in a police report that he had seen and heard some unexplainable things. His flashlight flickered uncontrollably in the basement until it eventually turned off by itself. It alarmed him because he had just replaced the batteries that morning. Austin took pictures of the basement where he said he could see a cloud resemble someone's face, and even recorded audio where you can supposedly hear someone whispering, hey. He claimed that he brought something back with him as his driver's seat kept moving back and forth on his way home. The movement was so intense that his seat motor broke. A believer in the supernatural, the DCS still wasn't convinced. Without hesitation, Reverend Maginot continued to investigate the demon house, particularly the basement with the police and Samantha Illick, the DCS family case manager. During his many visits, Maginot was convinced there might be a body buried under the stairs of the basement, which would explain the poltergeist activity. Police dug a 4 by 3 hole. It's here where they uncovered a pair of panties, socks, a cooking pan, and a drapery cord. Freaky. Illick claimed to have felt her pinky going numb after touching a sticky substance she found in the house. That same liquid was allegedly found dripping from the Venetian blinds in one of the bedrooms. However, no one could see where it was coming from. They cleaned it off the blinders to find the fluid dripping again. Reverend Maginot insisted the demon house needed to be exercised. The two-hour ritual, which consisted of prayers and performing an exorcism on Ammons yet again, was accompanied by two police officers and Illick. According to Illick, within 30 days after the exorcism, she went through a series of painful events that consisted of her breaking three ribs and obtaining third-degree burns. Did something attach itself to her? Maginot continued to purify Ammons even though she had moved to Indianapolis with her mother but returned to Gray for the court hearings. During months and months of cleaning her soul, Maginot said she was clear of any demonic presences and eventually the DCS returned custody to Ammons. Many speculate that these unforeseen tragic events were purely made up by Ammons, especially her landlord Charles Reed, to avoid any payment 
when living at 3860 Carolina Street in Gary. Anyone who's lived before and after Ammons has yet to experience any supernatural activity. Up next, the true story of a woman who rightfully earned the title of the Arch Murderess of Connecticut and the Poison Fiend. First, every year at this time I ask you to join me in bringing a Christmas miracle to those who are starving around the world. Right now, you can give a financial gift of any size to Food for the Poor by clicking the Give Life banner at WeirdDarkness.com. For each $50 we raise together, another child in the Caribbean or Latin America will be fed for an entire year and will receive clean water for life. Be as generous as you can, and also please encourage your friends and family to give as well by sharing a link to WeirdDarkness.com so they can click on the Give Life banner as well. And thank you in advance for whatever you give. If you're already a subscriber and fan of the show, please post a rating and review of Weird Darkness in the iTunes Store. Everyone who leaves a review automatically receives the audiobook Fright Before Christmas – 13 Tales of Holiday Horror through the month of November 2017 while supplies last. You can hear a free sample of this audiobook or purchase it for your own collection by clicking the link in the program notes, but if you'd like to receive the audiobook absolutely free, post a rating and review of this show on iTunes. Post your review, then email me a screenshot to let me know that you've done so. Posting an iTunes review helps people to find the show more easily, helps grow the show, and encourages people to send their stories for future episodes. In fact, a thank you to Corey Chojnacki who said, I would definitely recommend this. Like the subject says, I would recommend this to anyone who enjoys creepy and weird things. I enjoy how Darren speaks as he narrates the stories in each episode. I listen to every episode on my way to work. It really helps start my day. I also like to listen to them before I go to bed in hopes that it will give me some interesting dreams or nightmares. The best horror movies. Anyways, keep up the good work, Darren. And Tony P1408 said, Great stuff. Longtime horror fan, first time podcast listener love the show. The stories and narrations are amazing. I'm hooked. Stay weird. Thank you to everybody for leaving their ratings and reviews. I greatly appreciate you showing that you are official weirdos. Now, let's step back into the weird darkness. When Horatio Sherman took sick after returning home from a week-long drunken spree, he said it was just one of his old spells. His wife Lydia agreed and dosed him with brandy as usual. But Horatio's doctor, who had treated his alcohol-induced spells before, was suspicious this time. Horatio died two days later, and the doctor ordered a post-mortem examination which revealed the cause of death 
to be arsenic poisoning. When it was further learned that Lydia Sherman's first two husbands and seven of her children had all died of arsenic poisoning as well, she was called the arch-murderess of Connecticut, the modern Borgia, and the poison fiend. Born Lydia Danbury in Burlington, New Jersey in 1824, Lydia was orphaned at the age of nine months and was raised by an uncle. There was nothing in Lydia's childhood to predict her future murderous behavior. At 16, she was working as a tailor in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and had joined the Methodist Church. At church, she met Edward Strzok, a widower with four children, and when Lydia was around 20, she and Edward were married. They lived happily in New York City and had six children of their own. Their lives changed when Edward Strzok, who had been working as a carriage blacksmith, took a job on the newly formed New York Metropolitan Police Force. Strzok was called to a disturbance in a New York hotel and arrived too late to prevent a murder. A rumor began to circulate that Strzok had stayed away out of fear for his own life. An inquest was held, and Strzok was dismissed from the police force. Edward Strzok became severely despondent after his dismissal and was unable to hold a job. Eventually, he stopped trying to work and was ashamed to even leave the house. He began to act suicidal, and his former boss, a police captain, advised Lydia to send him to a lunatic asylum. Another policeman, a sergeant who lived in the same building, concluded that Strzok was out of his mind and would never recover. He advised Lydia to out him out of the way and told her to use arsenic, giving her instructions on where to buy it and how much to use. After giving it some thought, Lydia bought some arsenic from a druggist and added a thimbleful to a portion of oatmeal gruel which she gave to her husband. That night, Strzok became violently ill. A doctor was called who told Lydia that her husband had softening of the brain and would never recover. Strzok died at 8 o'clock the next morning. While Strzok's death eased some of the tension on Lydia, she still had financial problems. She did not believe she could adequately support her two youngest children, six-year-old Martha Ann and four-year-old Edward, and decided it would be better for them if they were out of the way. Lydia began giving them each small amounts of arsenic as well. When they became sick, the doctor said they had gastric fever. After severe vomiting, both children died. He was a beautiful boy, Lydia said later about Edward, and did not complain during his illness. Lydia now had four children in the house and was working as a nurse and seamstress. Her 14-year-old son, George, was earning $2.50 a week as a painter. When George took sick with painter's colic and could no longer work, Lydia feared he would become a burden. She mixed a little arsenic with his tea. The doctor said George died of painter's colic. The older children had moved out, and now only Anna Eliza was living with Lydia. Downhearted and much discouraged, Lydia thought that if she could get rid of Anna Eliza, then she and her oldest daughter Lydia could make a living together. When Anna Eliza came down with a fever that winter, Lydia added a little arsenic to her medicine. 
Anna Eliza died four days later. That same winter, her oldest daughter died of natural causes, leaving Lydia all alone. After trying several other occupations, Lydia took a job as a housekeeper for an old woman in Stratford, Connecticut. Eight months later, she left this job for another housekeeping position with an old man named Dennis Hurlbert. Within a few days of her employment, Hurlbert proposed marriage, and Lydia accepted. Lydia was happy as Mrs. Hurlbert for about 14 months, then Dennis Hurlbert took sick. Though it was later proven that Hurlbert died of arsenic poisoning, Lydia claimed in her confession that she was not responsible. Quote, I wish to say that I never gave Mr. Hurlbert anything to my knowledge that would cause any sickness whatsoever. There may have been arsenic in one of the papers I put together, but if there was, I did not know it. Unquote. In his will, Dennis Hurlbert left Lydia the house and $10,000. She was then approached by Horatio N. Sherman, a widower who was looking for someone to take care of his baby. He soon proposed to her. Though she did not agree right away, she was quite taken with Sherman and agreed to help him out of debt. They eventually were married, but things did not work out as she planned. Sherman turned out to be a hopeless alcoholic who could not be trusted with money. Sherman's mother-in-law was still living with them and taking care of the baby, Frank. One day, Sherman remarked to Lydia that he wished Frank would die so the old woman would have no reason to stay. This made sense to Lydia, who put some arsenic in little Frankie's milk. She also poisoned Sherman's 14-year-old daughter, Ada. Horatio Sherman's drinking increased. He did nothing to help his family and spent every cent Lydia gave him on liquor. Lydia finally convinced him to join the Temperance Society and Sherman took a sobriety pledge. He kept the pledge for several weeks, then sold the piano for $300 and went on a binge. Sherman was sick when he returned home a week later. Lydia put arsenic in a bottle of brandy and the more Sherman drank, the sicker he got. When a doctor examined him, Sherman said, it may be one of my old spells. But Dr. Beardsley did not think the symptoms were consistent with alcohol-related sickness and suspected foul play. Sherman died the next day, and Dr. Beardsley performed a post-mortem examination. Dr. Beardsley's suspicions were confirmed when Sherman's stomach was chemically analyzed. Sherman had died of arsenic poisoning and Lydia was charged with his murder. The bodies of Frankie and Ada were exhumed, and it was determined that they died of arsenic poisoning as well. Then Dennis Hulbert was exhumed, and another count of murder was added against Lydia. April 16, 1872, the trial began. Lydia Sherman's trial lasted only eight days. It was well attended and closely followed by newspapers throughout America. The stories often commented on how ordinary Mrs. Sherman looked. The prim and proper 48-year-old defendant came to court wearing a black alpaca dress, black and white shawl, straw hat, and black kid gloves. She appeared calm and almost cheerful behind her thin lace veil. 
The defense tried to convince the jury that Horatio Sherman had taken arsenic accidentally, or perhaps had committed suicide, despondent over his financial problems and the recent deaths of two of his children. But the evidence against Lydia was overwhelming. She was found guilty on second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. If she had been a man or been tried in a state other than Connecticut, she would likely have hanged. While awaiting sentencing, Lydia Sherman dictated her confessions, in which she admitted to most of the murders she was accused of committing. The book became a bestseller. There was also a song, Lydia Sherman. Here's a version of that song recorded by the Mockingbirds from 2006. Lydia Sherman has played with rats Lydia puts no faith in cats So she buys some arsenic Then her husband, he gets sick Then her husband, he does die Lydia Sherman died in Wethersfield Prison in 1878. This episode of Weird Darkness is sponsored by Horror Pack. If you're a true fan of horror, you will love Horror Pack, as they send you four terrifying movies on Blu-ray or DVD every month. 
Each month, you'll receive a mystery box delivered right to your door. Inside, you'll find four brand new movies carefully selected by horror film lovers like you. Subscribe today by clicking the Horror Pack banner at WeirdDarkness.com. For those of you who have been asking for it, the gear is here. Click the Store tab at WeirdDarkness.com and you'll find Weird Darkness t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, coffee mugs, phone cases, and more. If you're an official weirdo, take a look inside the Store tab at WeirdDarkness.com and you might find something to die for. While you're there at WeirdDarkness.com, please also click on the Give Life banner and give whatever you can towards our annual holiday tradition of feeding the poor. Again, every $50 we raise is another child who's fed for an entire year. So please give now and give generously by clicking the Give Life banner at WeirdDarkness.com. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. Again, if you like the show, please post a rating and review on iTunes. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true. The haunting spirit who led me to safety was submitted anonymously at MyHauntedLife2.com. Meet My Guide was written by G. Michael Vasey from MyHauntedLife2.com. The Poison Fiend, written by Robert Wilhelm from MurderByGaslight.com. The Ballad of Lydia Sherman, music written and performed by The Mockingbirds. And Beware of the Demon House, it is coming for you, written by Leah for Ripley's.com. Find links in this show's description. Music in this episode is provided by Shadows Symphony. You can find them online at Facebook.com slash Shadows Symphony. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. Security threats are everywhere. But with Xfinity XFi, you're notified of threats to your in-home Wi-Fi network, so all your connected devices are protected. That's simple, easy, awesome. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit today. Restrictions apply. Just because it's called higher education doesn't mean high tuition costs have to be the norm. At Strayer University, we have the radical opinion that education should be affordable. With our graduation fund, you can earn up to 25% off your bachelor's degree tuition, making it all the more possible to succeed in today's world. Welcome to the future of education. Strayer University. Out with the old school. Strayer University is certified to operate by Chef.